0: Hello and welcome to The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House. I'm Ruth Townend, Research Fellow in the Environment and Society Centre, and then the second of two COP28 takeover episodes, we'll be looking back on the conference, reflecting on the outcomes and comparing blisters. In testament to the quality of my baking, if not my podcast hosting skills, I'm joined not by three, but by four of my Chatham House teammates in the studio. However, the j- joke's on them as I'm stuck up in rainy Manchester and I'm afraid there's no brownies this episode. In the studio, not with me, there's Professor Tim Benton, Director of the Environment and Society Centre at Chatham House. Welcome to the podcast, Tim.
1: Thank you, Ruth. Hello.
0: Next up, Anthony Froggart, Deputy Director and a Senior Research Fellow in the team. Hi there. And welcoming back, Glade alarm, Senior Research Fellow. Hello, Ruth. And last but not least, Bernice Lee, Hoffman Distinguished Fellow for Sustainability. Hi. To warm us up, and I certainly need it as I'm missing the scorching Dubai sun, we have a festively themed item. For those who celebrate it, we're nearly at Christmas. So in homage to that, we'll be talking a little bit about the ghosts of cops past, the cop present and the cops yet to come. So first up, who thinks they've been to the most cops? We were having this discussion in the office earlier. Bernice, how many do you think
2: you've been to? I think more than fifteen.
3: Oh, mine's definitely below ten.
2: Yeah, I'm on three. Tim,
1: I think five.
2: No four.
0: Okay, so Bernice, I think you win, which means that you get COPs passed. So just reflecting back on the COPs so far, we've talked before about how you feel the Paris process is not not working. But what do you think is the legacy of the COPs passed that we were taking into COP twenty eight?
2: I think that COPs are the places where governments civil society, but increasingly as well, private sector come together. And I can't think of a place anywhere else where so many people with brains and means can come together. And that, of course, include the private sector, the banking sector, multilateral development banks, etc. So in many respects, the COP's past has been growing for a long time, up to where we are today. So in some sense, we're seeing a combination of no longer feeling like a Potemkin village, and really becoming a place where you see a lot of new people, which is actually quite exciting. is a sign of the issue coming becoming mainstream as well, that it's becoming a whole society gathering, not just of particular interests.
0: Fantastic. Thanks, Denise. And in terms of COP present, well, Anthony, you were there for the full two weeks. Do you have any reflections on this COP and how it ran?
3: I mean, it was ginormous. I mean, I think that's what everyone will remember. I mean, it, was said, We've
0: all got the blisters to show for it.
3: Exactly. I mean, it's, people said that it's probably the largest ever multilateral gathering in in history. And, and that, I think, reflects on what Bernice was saying. This is a cross-societal event. Climate change isn't about the science, isn't about the politics, isn't about the technology, isn't about the social engagement. It's all of these things. And that is now what we're seeing. And it's it's a balance, isn't it, between being inclusive from a sector perspective perspective, And from a a geographical perspective, but also then trying to get things done. And, And that is clearly the challenge that this COP and all future COPs will face.
2: If I may quickly add as well that ultimately it is a place where people come together so that we can have a forcing mechanism in some ways for global climate action. So I think that it is with this in mind that the size of it becomes both a benefit as well as a hindrance in some ways.
0: Okay, so that leaves me with future COPs. Following much diplomatic wrangling, we've now got the location of the next two COPs in the bag. Coming into COP28, the UNFCCC were in the odd position of having set a location for the next but one COP, COP30 in Belém, Brazil, but not for COP29. The reason for this was that COP29 was due to be held in Eastern Europe, but conflict in the region meant parties couldn't reach the necessary unanimous agreement on the location. Russia promised to veto any proposed European Union location in retaliation for EU energy sanctions in response to the invasion of Ukraine, while Azerbaijan and long-term adversary Armenia promised to veto each other. Azerbaijan and Armenia eventually broke the deal, meaning COP30 will be in Baku and Azerbaijan will be the second petro-state in as many years to host the climate COP. Some, including the UAE, have said that holding discussions around fossil fuels in the heartlands of their production is precisely what's needed, while others, including a broad contingent of civil society, feel that the fox has been let into the henhouse of the negotiations. COP30 in Brazil will be a landmark, with countries mandated to revise their National Climate Plans, or NDCs, ahead of the conference. The ambition of these NDCs will be one of many proofs of whether COP28 achieved its mandate to write the course of the world on climate change. With that, let's get down to detail in terms of what was achieved at COP28. I'm going to kick off the discussion by talking a bit about loss and damage and then about the global stock take. So it's been quite a gavel happy COP overall, with COP president Dr Sultan Al-Jaber playing it fast and loose with a tiny wooden mallet. One of the biggest ticket agenda items coming into COP28 was the need to agree the arrangements of the loss and damage fund countries committed to at COP27 last year. A transitional committee of 24 climate diplomats had spent much of the year pulling together a proposed plan for the fund, and al Jaber put out a draft text the day before the conference officially started. Two hours into the opening plenary session, the COP president raised the agenda item asked for objections and finding there were none, so decided, approving the decision, starting the conference with a literal bang. This left minds and meeting rooms clear for the next big item, the response to the global stocktake. Much of COP28 was devoted to the political response to this report card on progress towards the Paris Agreement, with the global stocktake discussion text taking the place of the usual wrangle over the cover decision. Given that, as report cards go, the one from the global stocktake was extremely poor, COP twenty eight was set up as a moment for transformational change. We'll go into more detail on how we got there in a minute. But the stocktake ended with another episode of swift gaveling. Within seconds of the closing plenary beginning, Al Jaber introduced the draft text called for objections, and then approved the text to a standing ovation. It was so swift, in fact, that the alliance of small island states, AOSIS, weren't even in the room when it happened and had to voice their concerns after the fact. This raises a bit of a running theme through the COP, and indeed COPs in general, of different parties having more or less of a platform in the negotiations. The size of delegations, for example, varied hugely, with some small island-developing states reportedly bringing five or six delegates and Brazil reportedly bringing 2,000. Now, Anthony, I know that you were following the geopolitics of the COP and also looking closely at the energy transition. Can you tell us how you feel these played out?
3: I mean, I think it's important to look at what we saw in terms of the COP was the extent to which geopolitics is front and centre within all of these discussions. In the run-up to COP, we see different positions, such as the G7 or the G20, uh, putting forward their views on important issues, in this case, in particular, around the phase out or phase down of fossil fuels. We also see bilateral uh, arrangements. So the, the month before the US and China met and um, produced what they called the Sunnylands Declaration, and then put forward a different position on the future of fossil fuels within the negotiations. So the geopolitical groups are, in the year, running up to COP, uh, preparing their positions. And that is reflected, as I mentioned, not just within the energy transitions discussion, but across the board. So it is a a key gathering in which throughout the year we see different countries uh, putting forward their positions and and trying to gauge or gather support for a a particular uh, element of the negotiations.
0: Thanks, Anthony. And Bernice, how did the different players at the COP interact? Did you see anyone bucking trends or did everyone stick to their established geopolitical roles?
2: It, perhaps it's not surprising how much attention has been focused on the COP presidency that it is t- has t- been taking place or has taken place in a fossil fuel economy, which means that a lot of attention is focused on around the role of fossil fuels. And this certainly affects the flavor of the COP. On the other hand, partly because US-China started off the COP with or before the COP started off with a relatively positive statement of collaboration, we were looking to everybody to see whether or not that provided the basis for shift and more, more ambition. And in some ways, I find that quite surprising that almost everyone stuck to what you thought they would say. Now, as it turned out, of course, you know, when we talked about COP's past, you know, gatherings usually provide a kind of free song of energy that forced things. So on this particular occasion, a lot of energy was about forcing specific language in the COP that was expected to come through. For me, at least, I found it quite surprising that, in fact, very few actually moved away from what you thought were their established position. And the question was always whether or not there was a form of language that could be agreed on that actually would move the world together.
0: Thanks, Bernice. Um, It's interesting you say that because this was meant to be a transformational COP, a moment of reckoning to bring us back on track for the Paris Agreement. Glada, as Bernie said, fossil fuels were very much the talk of the town. Can you tell us a little bit more about how things played out and the agreement in the global stocktake text?
4: Yeah, sure. Something very important was recognising that text perhaps long overdue Uh, which is the role of fossil fuels and the need to transition out of them. These were terms that were contentious. They were fought over. The negotiations went into overtime because of the issue. We had about 130 countries calling for language that would include a phase-out of all fossil fuels or at least a rapid phase-down. And so they were trying to get that language in the text. There were uh, amendments to that. And what you ended up with is uh, a rather... Uh, caveated text, but which still recognizes the direction of, of things. It actually calls on parties to contribute to the following global efforts, transitioning away from fossil fuels in energy systems in a just, orderly and equitable manner, accelerating action in this critical decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science. Pretty hard to disagree that that means a massive shift out of coal, oil, and gas starting within this decade and certainly intensifying uh, up to 2050. And that has really strong ramifications for the countries that depend heavily. On those fuels for their economic stability. So that's where geopolitics comes back in. You've got at least 40 countries that are really highly dependent on oil and gas, for instance. And and it was the first time that oil and gas was brought into the text under that term fossil fuels. Coal had entered uh, in 2021 in Glasgow. I mean, pretty surprising given the importance of fossil fuels in uh, the contribution to greenhouse gas emissions. They account for about 70% of the 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 ghgs that we we produce so it was long overdue uh did mark a turning point and there was upset and consternation from from the small island states and others that uh, a rapid phase out was not mentioned in the text to make it really explicit however it was probably a surprise to many that the text came this far given pushback from saudi arabia and uh, nigeria iraq and a few others on that language I think what is interesting is the supermajority of countries wanted to go
2: further on a number of issues, including the fossil fuel phase out. But in some ways, the consensus based process can only go that far. And we would need Mm -hmm. a better package in some ways to get more key countries over the line, much of which perhaps is beyond the COP process, especially when it comes to finance.
4: Exactly. And I think that's why those words were so important, the just, orderly and equitable. They draw attention, actually, to the kind of packages and assistance that are going to be needed for countries that have uh, high fossil fuel dependence and yet uh, low capacity to make the necessary transition in in jobs, in in revenue, in foreign exchange earnings, for instance.
0: Brilliant. Thank you, Glader. And Tim, COP28 promised to put food systems on the map. Do you feel like it succeeded?
1: Well, food systems have been on the wider multilateral map for some time. We had a food system summit under the UN a couple of years ago. The issue from an emissions perspective is that you can either tackle the sources of the emissions, which is primarily agriculture and transport of food, or you can think about taking it from the other end of the food system, the, the demand side, and saying, well, if we change what we, the amount of food we waste, and if we change the composition of our diets and eat different things, then that will drive down emissions or change, change emissions. So that's the point of the food systems approach, is to link demand and supply, And there was a lot of talk about food systems within the COP. There was a presidency-led Emirates Declaration on Food Systems, which was signed by about 160 countries. And we uh, launched a small coalition of highly ambitious countries called the Alliance of Champions for Food System Transformation. So things were going on, but what really struck me was that in the global stock tech text, food systems are not mentioned at all under mitigation. There's a kind of nod at methane, which could include food systems, but politically may, may not. Transition away from fossil fuels particularly and only mentions energy systems, so excludes uh, nitrogen use, fertilizer production, and so on. Food systems only appear in the adaptation section of the global stock take, and that's about building resilience of the food system to avoid food price spikes and uh, food insecurity. So whilst there was a lot of talk about food, it was one of the kind of predominant threads in the um, civil society and uh, presidency section. It didn't really make its way through into the negotiated text. And I think for many people, this is kind of expected, but not what what was hoped.
0: Thanks, Tim. I'm going to wrap up in the same way as we did before uh, in our previous COP28 takeover, by talking about the prospects for the Paris Agreement's 1.5 threshold. This COP potentially changed a lot of things, but what do you think will actually change? How are you feeling about the feasibility of that goal following the conference?
3: You can't look at the sort of future COPs in isolation from national politics and geopolitics. And I think what we will see potentially in Azerbaijan in mid-November next year is a different US president. And that, if President Trump is re-elected, it will be in the week before the COP29. And so that is just one and probably the most stark example of the, and the things that we will have to look at in the next 12 months. But we have a, a elections in other parts of the world in UK for example, uh, but also in the EU, in India, etc. So national politics are likely to be very different and in terms of geopolitics, we have the war in Ukraine, we have Israel Palestine, who knows what other potential crises will exist. So In some ways, we can see the roadmap and what we're likely to see from a a UNFCCC perspective, and that COP29 will very much be the build-out to the important COP30, but it's within that context of significant potential changes in national politics and geopolitical tensions.
2: Building on what Anthony just said, I think that it's true that Brazil will be where we will look to in many ways, because not just of COP thirty, but also G twenty, also is rolling bricks as well. And also I think that this COP has reinforced as well that Paris is ultimately still the lifeline in many ways because it all has to come back to Paris process where it is where the science lives and where we keep score and where vulnerable still have a voice. So in some ways, you know, I think that the sort of half full part is the fact that Paris remains a good and important lifeline. And then the other part that is possibly half full and half empty at the same time, is that nobody's gonna leave this COP and and come back and say, you know what, let's double down on investing in fossil fuel again. Like we, we felt this way last time when it was half full, half empty. It's still the case that there will always be folks who would want to invest more in different types of energies perhaps not necessarily cleanest one but actually they're not going to be the majority after this cop either so that's kind of how I feel about what the next step would look like
1: and building on Bernice and Anthony's comments I think there is a long-term sense of direction that has come out of, out of this cop but I think we can also say goodbye to 1.5 degrees that part of the Paris agreement because I just cannot see that it's feasible for the scale and the speed to get us to the point where 1.5 is still within sight. So I'm positive in the terms of the long-term trajectory. I'm much more pessimistic that we're going to be on course for 2 degrees rather than 1.5. But that in itself might well change the politics and accelerate us as people's lived experiences of climate change and 2024 is going to be a year full of extremes again because it's going to be the hottest year ever after 2023 being the hottest year ever. I think, uh, you know, there is scope for real action from small coalitions of countries really working together. But the overall 1.5 is probably, if not in a coma, certainly on life support.
4: And I think drawing on that, we're going to see a lot more need to cooperate over crises going forward. And, and like Anthony said, in terms of the COP, it was pretty much sort of everyone about everything. Uh, this COP, it seemed, if you were walking around the pavilions, and that's because it is about this whole scale economic transformation as we adapt to, to climate change and climate crises mixed with geopolitical crises. So, I, I mean, I what I'd be interested in in the future is probably something that, that came up at this COP, which was trade. There was the per- first trade Pavilion trade is incredibly important in in several ways for for mitigation and adaptation because it facilitates the the uh, transfer of, of green technologies around the world and um, you know their tariffs. Um, can competitiveness issues can be a problem and subsidies come into it as well but there's also going to be if the text on fossil fuels is anything to go by then we're going to have less recycling of petrodollars we're going to have less trade in fossil fuels and then the other issues relating to food and minerals and textiles is their huge depletion and pollution of water around the world which is an issue for climate resilience and adaptation so we need to look at trade differently and it was really interesting that the head of the WTO was there and speaking very eloquently about this and that there was also a meeting of the newly formed uh, Coalition of Trade Ministers for Climate Action.
2: Building on that as well, I always find it interesting that, you know, the first time I went to a trade minister meeting at COP was was Bali, actually, back in, I think, 2007. And it is now that it's actually becoming firmly on the agenda in a much more proper sense, even though, it's that they, even though they have gathered before in some ways for, around climate change. But also it's a good reminder as well for all of us that you know whatever the you know whatever the feelings about the text and there are certainly many different I mean by the way did you not notice everyone has an opinion piece on LinkedIn sharing their opinion about what they saw at COP every single contact of ours have had their own view which is a great thing to see as a sign of success in some ways there's so many people are involved but at the same time it's a good reminder as Anthony just said That, of course, ultimately a lot of it depends on implementation and that happens often place-based and therefore nationally, which is where we have to focus on many of the groundwork as well, including the political side. And that, of course, means not just the politics, but also geopolitics, because domestic politics is often a function of both domestic as well as external factors. So this is sort of a reality of implementation looms as we look forward that they will, you know, obviously this is a start, but nonetheless we still need to make sure that whatever needs to be delivered will have to be delivered on the ground as well.
0: Yeah, I think as al put it, the proof of the agreement will be in its implementation. So despite all of the wrangles over, as you say, Tim, commas and words at COP28, what happens next is really going to be quite definitive on our course of climate action. We have Two years, according to the IPCC, to peak emissions and seven years to reduce them 43 percent if we're to stand any chance of staying under 1.5 degrees. And that really is going to be a huge challenge and a huge transformational change. So it will be interesting to see what steps countries manage to take before COP29 and where we get to with NDCs before COP30. That concludes our climate briefing for today. A big thank you to my colleagues, Tim Benton, Anthony Froggett, Glader Alan and Bernice Lee. Please do follow them all on Twitter and, and indeed LinkedIn. Uh, links will be in the show notes. A reminder that you can find all of Chatham House's podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all major podcast platforms, as well as through our social media channels. So do like, follow and subscribe and please do leave us a review. To read more from our experts, we too have our our write up of what's happened at COP28, as well as some really insightful pieces around food and around abatement technologies. Or to become a member of Chatham House and we'd love to have you. Don't forget to visit our website, ChathamHouse.org, where you can follow the work of all our programmes, including our Environment and Society Centre. Goodbye from me, Ruth Townend, and thank you for listening.